you know, you have that Presbyterian excitement. It's just all inside, bubbling to get out. We're in Matthew chapter 12 today, and this is one of those hard passages of the Bible, hard sayings of Jesus, difficult things. So you will see that as we read. Please turn to Matthew chapter 12. We'll start at verse 22. Listen carefully, because this is God's Word, but this is a difficult passage. It needs your full attention. Matthew 12, starting at verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Tough stuff. We need to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us again to this amazing gospel to learn about Jesus. We ask you this morning to give us the grace to understand your hard teaching here. And it's hard not simply because it challenges our understanding. It's hard because it talks of things that are so serious and so terrifying, and we tremble to even think about them. And yet, we know this is your word for your people, for our edification, for our correction, and by it you intend to admonish us and lead us into the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray that by your Spirit you would, just, you would do just that. Not only give us understanding, but help us to embrace those things we ought to embrace because of the teaching of this passage and to shun those things about which this passage warns us. Open this gospel to us. Help us to see Jesus. 
In his name we pray. Amen. I became a Christian as a sophomore in high school, just a couple years ago. And another guy in my grade came to Christ at the same time, and we became best friends. And we remained that way up until his untimely death about 12 years ago. He was one of those guys that you could go a long time without seeing, but when you finally got together, it was like you'd never been apart. His name was Mark, and he was great fun, and I enjoyed our time together, and I wish we'd had more. About six months after becoming Christians, Mark and I went on a week-long summer camp that our church youth group put on. We went to the old Barrington College, which has since merged with Gordon College, but at the time uh, was by itself and was in Barrington, Rhode Island. And since Mark and I had come to Christ at about the same time, we were asked to share our testimony with the whole group, which consisted of several hundred high school students from all over the Boston area. And I have no idea what I said, and I doubt anyone else does either. But I vividly remember what Mark said. He was really attracted to the joy the other Christians had, our small group leader in particular. He loved that this guy was more excited, more joyous, sang louder, was the first to sign up for any activity, and was a great leader. And so he wanted to sign up too. And there's the rub. See, Mark was drawn to Christianity by a guy who was a great leader. But he was never drawn to Christ. And I've never forgotten that because to some degree it explained what happened the next year. The next year as youth group geared up again, I called Mark and asked if he needed a ride to the first meeting. It was important because we lived in the suburbs and our youth group was at Park Street Church in Boston, right on the Boston Common. And we would drive to the parking lot and take the green line into the city. Metro system in Boston is run by the MBTA the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority, commonly known as the T. And so I asked Mark if he needed a ride, and he didn't answer. There was a long silence. Finally, I said, Mark, you there? And he replied, yeah, I'm here. Man, I don't think I'm going. In fact, I don't think I'm going anymore. It was fun, but it's just not my thing. Have a good time. I was beside myself. I was stunned. I argued. I pleaded. I begged, but he wouldn't budge. Just not going to do the church thing anymore. So I called our small group leader and some of the other youth group leaders, and I told them Mark was dropping out. And I couldn't believe it. And most of them handled it great. They met with Mark. They prayed with Mark. They loved Mark. But one guy didn't handle it very well. He told Mark that by leaving the church and leaving the youth group, he was leaving Christ. And that was the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and he was damning himself to hell. And Mark simply said, I'm sorry. And he hung up. And except for the occasional wedding or funeral, he never went back to church again. We remained friends. I went to college and he went to the Air Force and then he went to college and I went to the Army. 
We both got married and we both had kids. Eventually I went to seminary and he went to grad school. We both got master's degrees and we both got doctorates. And he remained my best friend right up until the day he died. And I still miss him. Occasionally late at night, usually over a beer, we'd get talking about high school. And once in a very great while, we talk about what happened. And Mark would talk some about faith and what it meant to live that out, and I took great hope in that. But Mark never forgot what one guy said to him that fall day so many Septembers ago. And he would say something to the effect of, you know, some people think it's too late for me. And I would say, it's never too late. Not for you, not for anybody. That deadly phrase, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is found in our text today. And it contains a great truth. But when misused or misunderstood, it can become a great weapon with devastating consequences. So don't you use it lightly. Jesus didn't use it lightly. He used it sparingly, only one time, recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he used it to challenge people, not to condemn them. And he used it when they attributed the work of God to Satan. The ESV Study Bible says this is done through the flagrant, willful, and persistent rejection of God and His commands. This sin is committed today only by unbelievers who deliberately and unchangeably reject the ministry of the Holy Spirit in calling them to salvation. This is done by people with hardened hearts who don't care about God, who don't care about salvation, and who don't care about their own eternal destiny. It's given as a warning, it's given as a challenge, but never as a weapon. And to really understand that, we need to turn to our text for today. Matthew 12, verses 22 to 37. First of all, most commentators, most preachers divide this passage into two chapters, two sermons, two lessons. I'm not persuaded that's the best way to handle the text, primarily because this is part of the same teaching moment where Jesus is answering the Pharisees. As most of you know, I teach preaching at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, and every Friday afternoon, uh, I start class by having everyone in the class turn to the text that I'm preaching on that Sunday. And I ask them, what's the main point? Unless you think I'm cheating somehow, let me assure you, their answers are usually all over the map, and most of them are wrong. Maybe that's why they're taking the class. But this week, this passage stumped them. So I told them to look for similar words that are repeated again and again, and how often that's a good clue to what's really being taught here, and so they did. And in verse 22, we read, the man spoke. Verse 23, and the people said. Verse 24, they said. Verse 25, he said to them. Verse 32, whoever speaks, use twice. Verse 34, how can you speak? And the mouth speaks. And finally, we have the summary statement in verses 36 and 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And hence the title of this sermon, Careful Words 
in the kingdom. Because obviously to Jesus, words are important. So let's turn to the text. And the first thing we see there, starting at verse 22, are words of challenge. Words of challenge. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So the man spoke and saw. All the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. There's lots of things in this very deep, very profound passage. I want to point your attention to a few things that we learn here. First of all, right off the top, you see this amazing healing and this amazing response from the crowd. In these verses, we see Christ's work shows him to be the Messiah. Here, Matthew gives us a testimony that Christ is indeed the Messiah. He proves his Messiahship by the deeds that he does. A man is brought to Christ who is demon-possessed, and the physical manifestation of that demon possession is that he's blind and speechless. Now we know often Christ makes a distinction. He doesn't say that all physical disabilities are the result of a demon possession. But in this case, these physical disabilities are the result of demon possession. The work of demonic activity. And Jesus performs a great work in the life of this man. He casts out the demon. The man is instantaneously healed. And the miracle shows us the heart of Jesus. Once again, Matthew is showing us the compassion of Christ towards those who are not just physically disabled, but also those who are spiritually disabled, held in the bondage of Satan. And Christ loves them and has compassion for them and longs for them to be freed from the power of Satan. We also see here the power of Jesus, that he's sovereign. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He has the power to bind Satan and to release those under the control of demons. And the crowd is absolutely astonished. Jesus done miracles like this before, even in the Gospel of Matthew. But apparently these people witnessing this miracle hadn't seen Jesus do anything like this. It says they were amazed. And so they detect this connection between Jesus' teaching, his compassion, his power, his deeds, and this fact that he's the Messiah. And so they ask out loud, can this be the son of David, meaning the long-awaited Messiah? The event itself is compelling enough to suggest that his actions are from God. God the Father is revealing the power and person of his son in that event, and the crowd saw it. And it caused them to ask this question, can this be the son of David? It's a very hopeful question. It's a very anticipatory question. You have this demonstration of Christ's power over the physical and spiritual world, showing himself to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And as we deal with this passage today, the first thing we have to ask ourselves is, have I accepted, have we accepted that truth about Jesus? You know, it's possible to go to church your whole life and never personally embrace this truth about Christ. Although we profess his name in baptism, we profess his name in the Lord's Supper, we profess his truth in the confessions and the creeds and the catechisms, it's possible to live life and not embrace the reality that Jesus is the only Savior. 
and that He's the Son of God. And if you're a Christian, and if you've embraced that truth, and if you're living in that truth, let me ask you some questions. Do you take that truth into consideration in the way you live now that you have embraced Jesus? Do you live in awareness that it's the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the Messiah, who saved you from your sins? Do you recognize and acknowledge and manifest His Lordship in your life? Those are the questions that Matthew is trying to get us to wrestle with, that he's trying to press home in the passage today. But the second thing you need to see is the wicked response of the Pharisees to whom uh, to, to how they respond to what Jesus has just done. He's done this great miracle. He healed a man. The crowds are amazed. And yet the Pharisees are immediately mobilized in opposition to Jesus. And in this verse, we see that Christ's deeds just provoke them to even greater opposition. It's an amazing miracle, and the Pharisees just hate him even more for what he's done. Look what we read here, verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. That name even sounds bad. Okay, I know we got some expected people here. Do not pick this name. Okay, I throw out some Bible names occasionally. This is not one. This is a bad recommendation. Okay, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So Jesus' enemies quickly respond. And apparently they do so not so much directly to him, but among themselves and to the crowds, and their concerns for damage control. They see the crowds being swayed by what Jesus has done, by what he said, and they want to quickly put their spin on what Jesus has done. And they can't dare challenge the healing. The healing's compelling. Everyone knew the man. Everyone saw Christ heal him. The Pharisees wouldn't uh, dare say, oh, that didn't happen. So they attempt to attribute the source of Jesus' power to heal this man, not to the Lord, but to the evil one himself. In fact, in the parallel uh, passage in Mark chapter 3, they go as far to say that Beelzebul himself inhabited the soul of Christ. And later in Matthew, they come right out and they say, you are Beelzebul, you are Satan. These Pharisees, though they see the compassion of Christ displayed towards this demon-possessed man, they're asserting that the power that Christ used to free him is evil and came from the evil one. Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and for all their pretensions to godliness and spirituality, they are fundamentally evil. A few verses later, Jesus is going to call them a brood of vipers. Now we can't fail to see the wickedness inherent in the charge that these men bring against Jesus. They have seen the truth, not just heard it. They have seen it, and yet they call it evil. Both the book of Romans and the prophet Isaiah tell us Woe to them who call good evil and evil good. These are people who've seen good. These are people who've seen evil. They've seen the good clearly, and yet they've called it evil. Note the self-deception. Because by slandering Jesus, they are proving about themselves 
what they're trying to convince the crowds to believe about Jesus. They want the crowds to think that Jesus is of Satan. And yet by their slander against the Lord and against his compassion, they're only proving that they themselves are under the control of the evil one. Friends, we shouldn't be surprised when we find the gospel obstinately opposed by those whose hearts are darkened. If the Lord Jesus can do miracles and still people can resist the truth of his gospel because of the wickedness and hardness of their heart, we shouldn't be surprised that when we bear witness to the gospel, there's going to be people who defiantly oppose it. Don't think that, you know, if we just told it a little bit better, or we were a little bit kinder, if we could live a little bit more consistently, it would wipe out all objections to the gospel. That's not the case. Because the Lord Jesus tells us there's people in the world whose hearts are so darkened, they'll reject truth no matter how bright the light. And it appears these Pharisees are among them. And so the next thing we see is, we've heard the words of challenge, and the next thing we see is that those words are challenged. Those words are challenged. Starting at verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. We can probably just skip that because it's clear and you fully understand all of what I just read. See, what's happening is Jesus is turning the tables on the Pharisees. Not only does he bring a devastating response to the Pharisees, but he's returning the challenge. Getting a little warm up here. And so the Pharisees had accused him of being of the evil one and doing his works according to the power of Satan. And the Lord Jesus replies in this very detailed way. We're told in verse 25 that Jesus knew their thoughts. That could mean that he knew the general attitude of the Pharisees. But Matthew seems to be saying more than that. He seems to be saying that Jesus knew the inner heart attitude which lay behind the outward attacks on him. He knew their hearts. The Apostle John tells us that he knew all men. And this is what Matthew is reminding us of here. He's aware of their thoughts and their heart attitudes. He knows the state of their heart as they rise up to oppose him. And the state of their heart is simply reflected in the words that they've spoken out loud. Have you ever said something and you're not sure that it's what people wanted to hear and you say, was that my out loud voice? Uh-huh. That's what's happening here. They have spoken and Jesus is right there. I heard that. His response to them is five parts. 
We're not going to study them in great detail today, but I do want to walk through them somewhat quickly because they're important. And the first part of his response you find in verse 25. The first thing he says about their claim is that it's absurd. And he says it's absurd to claim that I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan. And he shows the absurdity by quoting a proverb and then asking a question. And the proverb he quotes is one that applies to all sorts of relationships, family relationships, national relationships. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And having quoted that proverb, which simply means, of course, that when there's internal dissension, a family, a relationship, a kingdom can't be built up. It only disintegrates. And so he asks this question in verse 26, and if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? How could it be that Satan would be deliberately fighting against himself when his goal is to build up his kingdom? And he shows the patent absurdity of their charge. You're saying that I'm casting out Satan's minions uh, by the power of Satan. That just doesn't make sense. So that's the first thing he says. The second thing he's telling them is their criticism is unfair. It's inconsistent. See, the Pharisees themselves had followers who claimed to cast out demons. Now, Jesus doesn't get in a long argument about whether they did or didn't. But he knows they have these followers who claim to have that ability. And basically, he says this, Why is it that when I cast out demons, you accuse me of doing it by the power of Satan? But when your followers, the ones you've taught in Hebrew school and seminary, why is it that when they do it, you say us oh, a mighty work of God, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? It's bad when I do it, but when they do it, it's good. That's inconsistent. It's unfair criticism. And so he suggests to them, verse 27, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. In other words, he says, if your followers, your sons, if they judge that you're right about me, that I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, then that calls into question what they're doing. And if they judge that you're wrong about me, that I'm not casting out demons by the power of Satan, then that calls into question your judgment about me. And so he shows that the sons, the followers of the Pharisees, Whichever way they answer the question is going to undercut the criticism which the Pharisees have brought against him. The third thing he says comes to us in verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's trying to show them that their criticism deliberately obscures the great work of the Holy Spirit. I want you to hear loud and clear what God is saying here. The Holy Spirit has been at work under the Old Covenant. He's been there in the promises and the prophets and the types and the forms. He's been working in the Old Testament, inspiring the prophets as they spoke the Word of God to the people. He's done mighty works in the Old Covenant. And never before, though, had there been a greater work of the Holy Spirit than the ministry of Jesus Christ. And he's recreating God's people. He's expanding God's kingdom. This is sort of uh, history so far, this is now in the ministry of Jesus, the greatest work of the Holy Spirit to date. 
And Jesus is saying, the Spirit is at work in my ministry, and you ascribe the work of the Spirit to demons. Let me try to put it to you more graphically. You remember the history of the Ten Commandments. It would be as if God spoke to the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery. I'm giving you these Ten Commandments. And at the bottom of the mountain, there's a group of Israelites. You know, I don't think that was the voice of the Lord God of Israel. I think that was the voice of Satan. That's kind of what's going on here. Jesus is saying, you've called the greatest work of the Spirit a greater work than the giving of the Ten Commandments, the work of Satan. It reveals the stubbornness and wickedness of your hearts. And Jesus' power over the demons is a manifestation of the fact that God's kingdom has come and the Lord has come with power. And he goes on to say, you can't even cast out demons until you've bound Satan. He's saying, every time you see me cast out demons, you know I have first attacked Satan. I have bound him. I have restrained him. Or I wouldn't be able to do that because Satan's kingdom can't be plundered until Satan is restrained. That's that strong man argument. He's saying, that's what I'm doing every time I cast out demons. And he goes on to indicate that by his incarnation, by his victory over Satan in the wilderness, by his preaching, by his ministry, by his miracles, he is in the act of binding Satan. And yet they deliberately attribute that work to Satan himself. It's remarkable. The fourth thing he says we find now in verse 30. He says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. He says you're either for him or against him. The Lord is saying there's no middle ground. You're either with me or against me. There's no middle position. Two kingdoms are at war. You can't pull for both sides at once. There's people that are thinking of a particular movie right now. You're with me, without me. With me, without me. With me, you can figure out the movie. But you can't be on both sides. Think of a football game. It's football season. And you go to a football game, and there's somebody there who changes sides every possession. They always root for the offense. Always. The people around you can't stand that guy. They hate that guy. Nobody likes that guy. Because he's not being loyal to one side. And so also in this war, this war between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan, you don't get to play in the middle you cannot be on neither side. You're either on one side or the other. If we're with him, and by with him, Jesus means an intimate relationship with him. If we're with him, if we're in fellowship with him, if we're in a saving relationship with him, he says in this verse, we will gather with him. That is, we'll be involved in his mission to gather in the lost, those aren't, who, who aren't in a relationship with him yet. And if we're with him, we're in the business of bringing people to him. Notice also, though, he says if we're against him, and you can be against him by openly opposing him or by simply being apathetic to his claims. And if you're against him, you're actually contributing 
to the scattering of the sheep, which makes them even more vulnerable to the prey of Satan. And then finally, the last thing, the fifth thing he says, we see in verses 31, 32. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. His target here is this particular sin of the Pharisees. Now, this is a hard issue. The unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, are things that are very difficult to explain. And if it were easy to explain, there wouldn't be so much confusion and wrestling over this issue. So let me see if I can clarify it just a little bit. Blasphemy is a word that's used more broadly in Greek than the way we use it today. Today, when we say blasphemy, we usually mean someone who is insulting God directly. Someone who is defiantly opposed to the Lord, both in speech and in attitude. But in the Greek, blasphemy is used for any kind of insulting language against anyone, anywhere, against either God or man. It can be used of disrespectful language towards other people. And Jesus says in verse 31, those kinds of insulting words which tear down God or man, those things can be forgiven, but not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And by that he means a defiant irreverence for the Holy Spirit's work that's manifested in your speech in heartfelt, blunt words. Sometimes people identify the unforgivable sin with not being repentant, if we want to give it one word. And that's certainly part of the equation that Jesus is speaking about here. But he is speaking particularly about the defiant, irreverent words which the Pharisees have shown to this great work of the Holy Spirit. Now we can see this pictured in two events in the Bible. The first event is Peter's denial of Christ, and the second event is Judas's denial of Christ. At first glance, these experiences are similar. They both deny Christ. Peter engaged in a serious action of denial of our Lord on the night in which he was delivered. Jesus or Judas engaged also in a very serious action of denial of the Lord. Understand the difference. Peter deserted the cause. Judas attacked the cause. Do you see the difference? Peter was later remorseful and repentant. Judas was later remorseful, but never repentant. Peter was temporarily disloyal. Judas was permanently disloyal. Peter was publicly restored by the grace of Christ. Judas killed himself without ever having been reconciled to the Lord. We see the outworking of two hearts both of which had engaged in serious sin, but one of which had been permanently hardened to the Lord. And I think that's a great picture for us of what this is about. It's one thing to turn your back on Jesus. It's another thing entirely to pull your sword on Jesus. And that's what he's trying to get here. It's also a great picture of the next truth that we see here. 
It's a biblical principle, last few verses here, that words reveal character. Words reveal character, starting at verse 33. Yes, there's a typo in there. It says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This section I'm going to focus particularly on the end of verse 34 and verse 35. And this notion that our hearts are storehouses of good and evil. And we learn that uh, we are what we think and do and say. Look at those words again, verse 35. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. A person's heart is a treasure chest. It's a storehouse. And what a person brings out of that storehouse depends on what's in the storehouse. You can't bring out of a treasure chest something that's not in it. And so when we bring forth goodness, it's a sign that God's grace is at work. We bring forth evil, it's a sign that we are contradicting the nature which Christ intends us to have. Or it's a sign that we are devoid of that spiritual goodness which the Holy Spirit desires to give. A person's grace and comfort and experience and knowledge and affections and resolutions, good treasures from the heart. When we can say with the psalmist things like we desire to know your word and study your word, that's a sign of spiritual work in our hearts. But when our hearts are set on evil things, when our tongues are constantly tearing down and uttering slander and making flippant statements about God, it's an indication of where our hearts are really at. Our nature determines our speech. Our speech is an indication of our nature. And since our words are intricately connected to our natures, we can't fail to examine our words. Not because our words are the ultimate issue, but because they're the indication of what's going on on the inside, what's going on in our hearts. We ought to have a longing to be right with God in the area of our speech. And we ought to long to do what is good. That can only happen by God's grace. I mean, this area of speech teaches us that, doesn't it? There is nothing so hard to control as the tongue. We read about that in our responsive reading this morning. When we think we're using it for good, sometimes we still use it to tear down, even among the people of God. And it's a sign that we have to depend on the work of the Spirit in our lives if we're going to master this area. The great commentator Matthew Henry said, unless the heart is transformed, the life will never be reformed. Unless our hearts are changed, we'll never get a handle on those outward expressions, whether in deeds or words. And of course, our concern shouldn't be only to look good, but to actually have been transformed. I mean, we don't want to be hypocrites, looking spiritual on the outside while our hearts are devoid of fellowship with God and love for one another. We want to be transformed, and only the Holy Spirit can do that. One is transformed when he or she believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, accepting his claims, receiving him as he is offered in the gospel as the only Savior of our souls, and being transformed by the grace of the Holy Spirit. That's how we experience transformation. 
and speaking words that honor God is a mark of spiritual growth in our lives. Our tongues obviously represent the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And then finally, he closes with this. That we note that we should remember that God takes note of every word that we say. That disrespectful and empty and foolish words are displeasing to God. And someday we'll have to give an account for our words. That's an awesome thing. It's pretty scary, in fact. To live in the light of the fact that our talk will be judged at the last day. The tone of our speech will be evidence either for us or against us on the last day. It reminds us that we need the grace of God. There's nothing like the tongue to remind you that it is impossible for you to walk perfectly before God. There's nothing like the tongue that shows you how much you need the grace of the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've all said things that we immediately regretted. We've all said things that we later regretted. We've all wondered at times, why don't I just shut up? I can't believe I said that. I can't believe that she said that. You know, we've all said that stuff. But I want to finish on a completely negative note. Because I believe with all my heart, and I know we're pushing the clock, but I believe with all my heart that you can be a great church. That you can be a great church. As you know, we have three students in seminary right now. Janelle Esposito is in the counseling program at Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, while Philip Pugh and Amanda Garnier are attending Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Massachusetts. As a graduate of both schools, I think this is great. I haven't heard from Amanda recently, but from her Facebook posts, it looks like she's falling in love with New England, which is an easy thing to do. I did recently hear from Philip Pugh, and he wrote something I found tremendously encouraging. He wrote, quote, Spiritually, I'm spending more time in prayer than I have in a while, chalking it up to devotions with coffee, and I've already been blessed by the morning prayer service held every weekday. I'm still praying about where to find a church, so keep that in mind. I am only just now realizing how much the folks at Potomac Hills blessed me this past year. So pray that I could find good fellowship like I did when I was with all of you. Recently, Janelle Esposito has a blog and writes often, Posted the following, she was writing about being a single woman and how hard that can be sometimes. And near the end of a very long post, she wrote this. I guess I would like people to treat me like an adult and not like a kid simply because I'm unmarried without kids. I would like others in the church to pursue me because I often feel like I'm on the outskirts. Separate singles ministries do nothing but segregate singles even further than everyone else. The most loved I ever felt at church was the ages of 23 to 25 at a suburban congregation in Virginia. I was one of the only single people my age there, and I was able to connect with families, teenagers, young married couples. I was regularly invited to people's homes. 
and was simply treated like family. One lady told me she could be my Leesburg mom. I just felt so loved and invited into community. I had friendships which crossed generational gaps, and I got along just fine. I didn't feel like the minority. I was family. She finishes, I did not realize how rare that was. Philip and Janelle are writing about you. They're writing about how you treated them, how you accepted them, how you loved them, and how you spoke to them. They're writing about how your words to them were filled with grace and how much they miss that. Words make a difference. Your words make a difference. Jesus says words demonstrate whether or not you're following him. And our brilliant seminary students are telling the world that you are following him. They have heard your words and their words of grace and words of life. Thank you. Thank you. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close.